What's your name? Riley, Doghouse Riley. <laughs> That's a funny kind of name. No, I'm a shamus. What's a shamus? It's a private detective. Why not? I don't make them like they used to. Movies are people. Welcome to Gimmicks, a podcast about the high-concept, experimental, structure-breaking gimmick episodes of TV, from musicals to bottle episodes to dreamt-up film noirs that solve a real murder attempt. I'm Derek B. Gale, and who's with me today? It's Craig Byrne from KryptonSite.com. Hey, Craig, you want to get all dolled up and go to the opera while holding on to government secrets? There's like no way we'd get shot over that, right? Like, we'll be totally fine. And I'm going to put it all in a cigarette case. Yeah, of course. Of course. Even though you don't smoke, you know. (laughs) We are talking about the long-running Young Superman series, Smallville, Season 6, Episode 20, aptly titled Noir, which, of course, is a noir pastiche. If you are unfamiliar with Smallville, just a real brief rundown of what it is. It is a superhero drama that aired on the W. And the CW for 10 seasons from 2001 to 2011. Uh, It's a reimagining of the Superman mythos following a teenaged Clark Kent, played by Tom Welling, as he grows up in his hometown of Smallville, Kansas, and also follows him well into his adult life. It still remains one of WB and CW's most popular and long running shows of all time, arguably what jump started the creation of the larger DC TV world we continue to see today. Uh, But before we go deeper into it, Craig, this is such a funny question to ask you of all people. What's your personal history with Smallville? Do do we have (laughs) two hours? People are going to turn this off. No. um, So I ran CryptonSite.com. It still exists. It's a website uh, focusing on the TV show Smallville. Um, I got started, like, I loved Superman ever since I was, like, 12 years old. The first comic I ever bought of Superman, or the first Superman issue I bought regularly was when Clark and Lois got engaged in Superman number 50, which was Crisis of the Crimson Kryptonite. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I just got, you know, I got like really interested and then, you know, then they did the death of Superman comics and the return. And then there was Lois and Clark and a friend and I started a Lois and Clark online newsletter on AOL in May, 1995. So, you know, we were writing about we were writing about Lois and Clark. We did a fan fiction fifth season that we sent out every Sunday night. Mm-hmm. And then a couple years later, I had a little page up about this teenage Clark Kent project and Krypton site grew from there and eventually I got to write the official books about the series. Yeah. Including about season 6, which includes the episode that we're discussing tonight. Yeah, uh, most of the information I have on this podcast comes from that book. So they're good books. I would highly recommend them. Um, and I'm not still not going to have every every quote and stuff that's in the book. So if you uh, like Smallville, I highly recommend checking out those books. Um, buy them for pretty cheap, I think, still, too. So <laughs> I think you can get them for cover price or less on Amazon or eBay. Yeah, yeah they're worth it for sure. I Smallville's uh, one of still one of my favorite shows of all time. I think for a long time it was just like I just called it my favorite show. Um, at this point, I, it, it's just sort of its own kind of weird tier for me because it's so kind of shaped 
a lot of my tastes, I think, as an adult, ultimately. It's the show that did get me into Superman. I really didn't really didn't care much about Superman otherwise like it was fine but uh but I think this was this my sort of gateway into the larger Superman mythos was was Smallville and it's a thing that I love revisiting because it's it is a show that has a lot of flaws but it also has a lot of really great stuff in it um and I and and I can never talk enough about it I think and and I'm kind of excited to talk about this one because I think this is an episode that isn't talked about very often to be I honest. I even remember a lot of what we watched. I mean, and I've watched this episode <laughs> more than once. I think the last yeah. time was when I was writing my season 6 book. So that's been 14 years ago. I think that that's that's really interesting. Honestly, like cuz I kind of forced this episode onto you. This isn't one that you picked for the podcast. But I think part of that reason was that I really wanted to talk about it and I don't think this would ever be anyone's first pick. And there's other episodes of Smallville that I think would fit for this podcast that maybe at some point down the line I would love to do. Thirst. I'm just kidding. Oh, I would love I love Thirst. I unironically, I think that episode's great. I do too. <laughs> but I think that what's fascinating about this episode is that Smallville doesn't really do a lot of genre mashup episodes. And when it does, they're always still kind of taught they're still they always still feel feel like smallville like their vampire episode they're still kryptonite vampires the zombie episode they're still kryptonite zombies even like the christmas episode that's like a wonderful life christmas carol story it's it's a whole dream episode but it still feels very much like smallville this is really i feel like probably the only episode where they fully 100 percent like commit to the bit of doing a completely different film style, completely different storytelling style, and like fully commit to it in a way that I don't think any other episode really does. Well, what I found interesting watching this is it seemed like they had a higher budget for sets. Yeah. It's like they weren't thinking about colors, so they were able to do stuff. But even seeing the upstairs of the Daily Planet, we never really saw that. And it looked mm-hmm. great. Just the like the various locations when they're outside and the way it was shot. I mean, Janot Schwartz, who directed this, who also directed the Supergirl movie um, back in Mm -hmm. the day, uh, he clearly just had a love for this genre. And I think they really made it, I mean, just the hair, the makeup. I mean, it's so easy for shows to get this wrong. And I don't think they did. Yeah, I think that's, that's the other thing too, is that like, a lot of shows do noir episodes because it's a fun thing to do. And I think there's already, I already have a noir episode of a, of a sitcom like lined up to do later on this podcast, not long from now. And and they're often pretty good. And, and sometimes they're a little half-assed. Sometimes it's just black and white and throw a trench coat on someone. And there's your noir episode. <laughs> and I think the commitment to it in this episode is, I, I don't know that I've really seen many TV shows do it as well as it does in terms of it. Like they really did try to make this feel like you could, you could trick someone into thinking that they're watching a movie from the 1950s. That is an actual noir movie. You know, there was a lot that impressed me too. I mean, Eric, like it was clearly Erica Durant singing. Mm -hmm. She sung very well. She was great. And I commented to you before we started recording that like, with the hair and the outfit, Chloe looked more like Lucille Ball than Nicole Kidman does in that new movie. Yeah. That hairstyle just was totally, it just totally reminded me of Lucy. But like, just even minor things like seeing John Glover in the past and like mm-hmm. he's clean shaven. It, I didn't expect that, you know, it was yeah. fun. It's really fun. It's really fun. Do you believe a man can fly? People can't fly, Lex. I did. October 16th on the WB's new Tuesday. 
the day of the meteor shower. This is how you came into our world, son. What are you trying to tell me, Dad? A small town on the edge of innocence. Who's there? It's me, Clark. I'm used to people judging me before they get to know me. I don't want anything to stand in the way of our friendship. Sometimes people can surprise you. We are the future, Clark. A young man on the threshold of destiny. We wanted to protect you. Protect me from what? Michael Rosenbaum, Kristen Crook, and Tom Welling. We didn't find you, Clark. You found us. WB presents Smallville. Real quick, I think like, I feel like most people know what film noir is, but for any listeners that maybe aren't like film aficionados or whatever, or hear the term, I don't really know exactly like exactly what it's referring to. It's French for dark film, literally, but it's also uh, kind of best described as like stylish Hollywood crime dramas, essentially. Um, They're really mostly associated with like hard boiled detective stories, uh, usually in the 1940s and 1950s. That's when the actual films were most prominent. And I think it's really the thing with noir is that like, there's plenty of genres that like, you know, the genre of them, but I think with noir, Noir, there are things where it's both associated with the look of what noirs look like and storytelling tropes at the same time. So you have like the look of like a low key kind of high contrast black and white visual style. It's kind of like rooted in like German expressionist cinematography, but there's also these like common tropes of like the down on his luck detective being tricked by a sexy femme fatale and lots of murders and frame jobs and love affairs and everybody's smoking constantly. (laughs) There's just like a general, like just cynical worldview to it. And so I think that the reason a lot of TV shows do noir episodes is because it, it is kind of easy to pinpoint a few sort of signals and just make it feel completely like a completely different genre right off the bat, you know? It's like think movies like The Maltese Falcon, The Big Sleep. You have modern noirs like Who Framed Roger Rabbit is technically a noir movie. Um, Veronica Mars is a noir pastiche. Even like Blade Runner is technically like a neo-noir. So like you sort of see it in in the roots of a lot of a lot of stuff in pop culture. And I think TV shows have fun doing it because you can just tell a fun, really dark and cynical (laughs) murder mystery story, but then also do it with like old timey vibes, you know? What surprised me watching this also, you know, years later, which we might not have even realized when we're watching it, is how much of it kind of had parallels to what was going on in the present day for real in the show. Like Lana faking her death, spoiler alert, does happen (laughs) a few episodes later. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I think that this episode is really underrated for a lot of reasons, because I was looking up just sort of what the reaction was at the time, and most of the reviews were either like very negative or just kind of middling. And I think that it had less to do with the episode itself and more like the sort of when it was airing, because for one, this is episode 20 out of 22, so it's very close to the end of the season, and I could sort of see, if you're watching, like we're, we obviously have picked this out kind of out of context without having revisited the whole season in a while, but if you're watching it in the context of the whole, of the whole show, it's like, it feels like it's a dead stop for the main story arc. Um, to tell this dream episode that does definitely have ties into the major story arc and everything. But I think if you're just like waiting impatiently to see what all the like phantom business or whatever is like, it's going to feel like a, a detour. But what I think is really clever about it, like you referenced to that, it really mirrors like what the whole season has kind of been up to that point. Like, 
the sixth season of Smallville is very dark and very cynical, kind of a drag sometimes, but in a way that kind of feels intentional, where Lana is like a femme fatale in the actual reality of Smallville. There's all kinds of like betrayals and like secrets and stuff. And like Smallville itself had kind of become a noir in a lot of ways by this point in the show. So it makes sense to just do an episode that embraces that aspect of it. I also found it interesting that you could also see parallels to like Jimmy's insecurity about Clark just being the mysterious hero who just comes in and saves the day with a shield at that. I thought that was kind of cool too, because it kind of uh, defined the relationship between Chloe and Jimmy at that time. Yeah, it really does. And I think, yeah, and in a way that you hadn't really seen much with him, because this at this point in the show, Jimmy's still a guest star. He's not even part of the regular cast. This is his first season on the show, and he doesn't really get that many like centric episodes. Like I think he gets like two more in the entire show, arguably. So this is like the first time you really get to peer into his personality at all, and you get a lot of like rich character information from him in this episode, which I, I find really interesting. I mean, he did lie and say his name is James when actually it's Henry. Well, in his dream, he did. So, to be fair. <laughs> in Rivervale. In Rivervale, yeah. <laughs> Jimmy, by the way, uh, played by Aaron Ashmore, who I think a lot of people would, would know best after this going to Warehouse 13. Um, he's also on a Canadian show called Killjoys that I don't know, but he was a main character in that. And also he recognizes the twin brother of Sean Ashmore, who also appeared on Smallville. But Sean from X-Men and mm-hmm. Animorphs. Yeah, but Aaron's got his own vibe, and I think he's very good. Next Thursday on Smallville. I'm Clark Kent. Love. Is this real? Power. Losing your grip, perhaps. You used to run this town. And murder. I hear you're the best. Smallville. All new episode next Thursday on the new CW. So I got a little, some background information on sort of what the genesis of this episode was. Like I said, I think I'll, I think there was just sort of a general vibe of like, just noirishness in the storytelling that they were doing the season of the show anyway. But per Craig's book, um, they tell the story of uh, of the sort of genesis where they're looking at the, like the promotional photos for the season, which like you can look up. Everybody is like styled like in a really kind of old timey, old old Hollywood kind of way. Like all their fashion and hair. Oh, yeah like almost kind of looks like out of this, out of like the thirties or forties. And they say that they sort of like, everybody kind of recognized that. It was sort of like, what if we did an episode where everyone looked like that all the time to prepare the director, uh, Jeanneau Schwartz apparently looked at like several noir films uh, with fellow director and, and cinematographer, Glenn Winter. Um, and he said, we decided to do it in black and white and shoot it in the style of the period. Nothing is as tight as it is in the world of Smallville. Uh, it's more two shots and three shots and strong composition and low angles so that means that they didn't do these like extreme close-ups that if you watch smallville there's a lot of extreme close-ups on people's faces suddenly there's like none of those uh in this noir flashback and it's very distinct i loved seeing the different angles of this because it didn't really i mean like smallville i think is one of the i mean people might you know make fun of the show sometimes but it's one of the most well shot series yeah I think a lot of that had to do with uh, Greg Beeman's leadership as like the main director. He made it very colorful, mm-hmm. strong palettes, but like, and of course, Glenn Winter, you know, has gone on to direct like the pilots of several DC TV shows. Mm-hmm. I liked that this did look different. Like you saw, you know, like from behind a table, you would see two characters talking or I just loved it. I just thought it was so different. And yeah. Yeah. 
I agree with you too. I think it's kind of, you can say what you will about some of the writing choices on Smallville and the way that the budget is handled at certain points. Like, I think you can argue that a lot of times, like at certain points in the show, the sets look very cheap, but even when they look cheap, it's always shot beautifully. Like it, it's always a dynamic looking show. It always looks like a more expensive show than I think it actually was. And I think like in terms of like how it is shot, it's never, that's that aspect of it throughout the entire run is never half-assed like that. That's always the best part of, of the show. And something that I, that I learned is that this episode actually won Glenn Winter and American Society of Cinematographers ASC award for this episode specifically. And I found like, when I was looking that up, I found like the site cinematography.com message board from that year that is just full of like cinematographer people just like praising this episode. Oh wow. And, like, so cool. It's really cool. And like Glenn Winter, Glenn Winter himself, apparently like I saw chimed in and they were all nerding out about like the camera techniques that I didn't understand, like all the technology they used. But I think like I say, all that because I think that like I said I think that's an aspect of the show that I think is often under talked about is even when people are complaining about the writing on it it always looks gorgeous and I think a lot of that can be attributed to Glenn Winter especially yeah Glenn deserves a lot of credit for I mean cinematography but yeah like this episode and I mean just the notion that he just rose up the ranks and became mm-hmm. a director himself. Um, and now he's like, I would say he's like in the top like 2% of like CW directors now, probably in demand oh, also. Awesome. Yeah. I think he did the pilot. I, I could be wrong, but I know he did the pilot of Doom Patrol. I think nice. he did the Supergirl pilot and he did the Stargirl pilot. I think. That's awesome. And then of course, Greg Beeman's been at Stargirl too. So yeah, they deserve it. They're like, yeah, they, they, they always kill it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's good stuff. Yeah. Other thing I think is interesting is that when they were doing this episode, all the characters sort of had models in terms of their styling and characterization that were sort of pulled right out of these classic movies, right? Pulled out of old Hollywood. So for Clark, they sort of instructed Tom Welling to sort of em- emulate Cary Grant specifically. For Chloe, she was both modeled, and you commented on this, modeled and kind of pulls a similar acting style to Lucille Ball oh. from like specifically like through all comedies of the 40s. Um, so that was all very intentional. <laughs> <laughs> I did not. I, I did not remember that. I'm sure I knew it if I put it in my book, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was in, it was in the back of your head somewhere. Yeah. Um, Lois, played by Erica Durant, uh, she was instructed to be like uh, kind of emulate Rita Hayworth and Gilda. Kristen Crook was uh, asked for Lana to be uh, emulating Ava Gardner in The Killers, who's like the femme fatale in The Killers, so that makes sense. Michael Rosenbaum was told to emulate George Raft for Lex, uh, and George Raft often and played a lot of gangsters in noir films. So that checks out. And then Jimmy, they sort of based him on Dennis Morgan. And he was like typically cast as like these comfortable and well-mannered type dudes that were like the antithesis to a more like gritty Humphrey Bogart type. So like the nice guy who gets tricked by the lady basically (laughs) is who Jimmy is. And that's exactly who he is in this episode. I also think just like all the little details uh, I think are really fun uh, that you pick up more as you watch it over and over again. Like for one, so much smoking. And if you watch any CW show, people are rarely smoking on the CW, but like everybody has a cigarette in their hands in this episode. And like their use of like slide wipes for scene changes is very unlike Smallville. Um, Love that they had a slide wipe at the end of the episode for the executive producer credit. I love that. I love that. I think that's really fun. I do think the dialogue is really well handled in this episode too. I have a couple of line exchanges that I really like, but one of them that I had picked out when I was looking for an example is like, you stroll in here with this 
crackerjack kid. You trying to land me in the cooler? I don't even know what that means, but it sounds like it's out of a 40s movie. And I think that they they kind of nail that. I think that the acting is to varying degrees. It would be nice if everyone kind of had the transatlantic accent and stuff. But for the most part, it's clear that everyone's playing a very different character. And I think that... Uh, that everybody kind of really shines. You know, I have expected, I don't know why, since again, I've seen the episode, I have expected to see Lex with hair. Because they could have given Michael an excuse to have hair, you know? You know, though, like, he wouldn't have been able to have time to grow it out himself for this one episode. So I think maybe, like, they would have had to give him a wig, and I feel like maybe that oh, would have just never been like, insult to injury, you know? CW wigs <laughs> are never good. No, they're never good. So that would have been bad. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> yeah. He's wearing he's wearing a hat most of the time anyway, so it's Or even like a buzz cut or something. Or you know, like yeah. just let it grow for a couple days. <laughs> see what happens. But yeah, kind of like I said earlier, this episode wasn't as well received as I think it should have been. I think it's kind of really underrated. It it, had a, it was pretty low Nielsen ratings at the time, too, although I think most of the episodes from this season at this point kind of were. Smallville episodes usually dropped off around episode 20, mm-hmm. like every season, if you check it out. Um, I mean, I hope more people saw this than Ageless, though that might not be possible. Yeah. That's the other thing, too, is that, like, there's a while in Smallville where there was almost, like, an episode 20 curse, where every episode 20 was just, like, really bad. <laughs> well, that, but also, I think, I mean, especially now with streaming, it's changed. Mm-hmm. But even mm-hmm. back then, I think people are like, oh, well, the season's almost over. I'll just wait for the DVD set. And now it's just, sure. I'll wait for streaming. Like, you yeah. look at the ratings, and the fall episodes generally did really, really well, and then it just went... Pfft. In the case yeah. of Smallville season six, especially, you had those 12 or 13 episodes leading to justice. Mm-hmm. And then I think people kind of had an excuse to jump off because oh, Green Arrow's gone. Justice League happened. Yeah. Maybe they're not feeling this phantom story, which I would not blame them. And I think people were burnt out on the Clark, Lana, Lex stuff, too. Yeah. And the Clark, Lana, Lex stuff still makes no sense to me. <laughs> it still bothers me to this day that there was the whole pregnancy thing. And Lex mm-hmm. faked it. Yet, mm-hmm. I think it's the episode Static. You see him finding out Lana is pregnant, and he's, like, all happy. And it's like, dude, you made it happen. And nobody's there it's... to fake your emotions to. Right. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Will you marry me? Chloe, Lex proposed. Something wouldn't let me say yes. You knew she was vulnerable. And you played her until she thought she was in love with you. It must be killing you that she's hesitating. You see, I highly doubt she'll say no, Clark. I'm pregnant. Clark, you said that you didn't love me anymore. And I tried to cut everything off, but I'm not made that way. Lex Luthor's building an army. He's starting a war. Can't let that happen. Don't worry, my team's on it. Your secret's safe with me. Let's go save the world. Smallville. All new episodes Thursdays at 8, 7 central on the new CW. It's yeah, it's like they really were kind of embracing the soap opera of it all. I don't know. I think it was just like too late for that. People were already done with a lot of those particular romance stories in Smallville. And and I think in particular because they hadn't really evolved for years. And so by the time we get to this point in season six, where I do to their credit, I do think that there are some pretty big swings 
in how they handle those stories and like the the things that characters learn about each other. The dynamics are different. Lana like kind of gradually learns more and more about Clark and his secret and stuff like that. And I think that those were good ideas, but it was so late into it that like that coupled with these sort of very soap opery, like fake pregnancy to get my girlfriend to marry me type storylines that it's just like, it's, it's just very exhausting by the end of it. Yeah, it, it, it is. Um, I will say though, I, my friend Zach does the always hold on to Smallville podcast Mm -hmm. and I did his episode about promise because I was on set for that episode Mm -hmm. and, uh, watching that again, I, I was just reminded of what a relief it was that Lana finally knew. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I, I, I you know, I mean, it felt like everybody was finding out except for the one he supposedly loved. Right. That was messed up. It's like Aqua Bro found out like the day they met. I know. You know? <laughs> yeah. And Promise is actually another episode that I want to do on my podcast at this point just because I like I like the idea of their big wedding episode being like a Rashomon structured episode. Like that's the kind of thing that I have so many mixed feelings about this season of the show because as much as I was just sort of burnt out on most of the plot lines of it and really weren't vibing with most of them either, I think that this is a season that feels like they were taking bigger swings that I think they needed to. Like they weren't coasting. I don't think I didn't love a lot of the storytelling. But this didn't feel like they were coasting because you would have these sort like a high concept episode like Noir. They did write their promise to be this sort of like weirdly structured episode. You have the episode where Clark's the like labyrinth where Clark's in his own head in a mental hospital. That's sort of very unlike any other episode of the show. Like it did feel like they were they were trying to do different things with the show and experiment with it a little bit in a way that they hadn't before. You also have to consider the time period. Um, it was the first season on the CW. Which is a brand new network. Yeah. And I think they were thinking they were going to wrap it up and then just go on over to Aquaman. And then Aquaman didn't happen. That was like season five. Yeah. But then it was doing so well for the CW, despite mm-hmm. Don Ostroff trying to kill it constantly. Yeah. So there was that. But there was also the factor going on at this point that over on NBC, they had launched Heroes. Mm-hmm. And Heroes was like the superhero darling of television that year. I mean, mm-hmm. people might not believe that now, 15 years <laughs> later, that that show got, I think, over 12 million yeah. viewers a couple of times. I, I remember being there and that was like, that's what you compared all of TV to for that season. And so when you compound that with the notion that Smallville had lost Greg Beeman, Beeman was overworking on Heroes. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the CW did cut the budget a little bit. Oh, yeah. So there were some challenges. But yeah, so I think that might have been part of why they took big swings. I, I've i never asked Alan Miles about that. That would be a really good question for them if that mm-hmm. had an inspiration to it. But I do wonder, though, um, you know, they, they constantly tell different stories of how long they expected the show to last. Yeah. I'm going into the mindset that when they were writing season six, they thought season seven would be the end. Sure. And so this is kind of like next to last season kind of material to do. It makes sense. Yeah. Cause you're sort of like, well, we never put Lex and Lana together. So why not do it? We never let Lana in on the secret. So why not do it? We never did these sort of weird ass episodes before. So why not just try them out? We're almost done anyway. Yeah. That kind of checks out actually. Yeah. So You know, it happens. I I think it's fun. And again, like, I feel like this episode, I mean, obviously you pointed out that Glenn Winters peers loved it. And looking at it now, it's like, again, I was blown away by the look of it and what seemed to be the budget of it, especially as far as like the sets and stuff. And 
the the clothing even yeah it's just like where did they get this budget and where was it the rest of the series right all the beautiful <laughs> like silk evening gowns and robes that lana wears like both in the dream reality and in the real world it's it's yeah it's uh, it's wild and and I mean I mean it's always viewing a period piece is always expensive all the extra props that they have to have and like the cars the time period cars yeah and I mean and and I think like I, you brought it up a little bit earlier but it's like you can't the sets don't look nearly as cheap they don't look like sets in this and I think a big part of that it probably is because when you're lighting in kind of high contrast black and white you're kind of able to mask the set of it all a lot better than I think you normally can. It's like in this pandemic, I've been watching a lot of the original dark shadows TV series and the Mm -hmm. first almost 300 episodes, it was in black and white. And honestly, it was a Mm -hmm. better show when it was in black and white. It was very Gothic noir. And you know, once you got to color, you could see some of the flaws a bit more easily. It's like, wow, they have a lot of wood paneling in their house (laughs) beforehand. It's like, Ooh, this is mysterious and spooky and, I think, you know, visual effects of the of the time looked better, you know, than in color. Doctor Who had the same situation. Mm-hmm. Compare something like the Dalek Invasion of Earth to like one of the Sylvester McCoy episodes. And it's like embarrassing how bad the show looked in the 80s compared to. Yeah. I remember like um, even goofier stuff like Lost in Space. Like I remember seeing like the color episodes of Lost in Space and it's like, Oh, that's what their spacesuits look like now. Like it's like they made it color, and then they add, you know, and then it's like, well, we have color, so now they're just be wearing purple now. I guess. Strangely <laughs> enough, on the Blu-ray of the Lost in Space reboot season one, mm-hmm. they have a colorized version of the original Lost in Space pilot. Oh, really? Because it was shot for black and white, the colors are a bit more muted. Interesting. It almost looks like a painting. That's fascinating. It's not, you know, originally it's meant to be color, but. I highly recommend you see that. That's one of the best colorizations I've ever seen of anything. But that's also because they weren't trying to be as colorful as you just pointed out. Yeah. Oh, I definitely want to check that out. That sounds rad. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> well, cool. Well, um, there's still plenty to talk yeah. about. So let's go ahead and let's jump through the uh, the episode itself, shall we? like to watch this episode or this series along with us it is streaming in the u.s on hulu it is available on dvd and was just recently released on blu-ray um on a set that i haven't gotten yet but let's face it i probably will i don't have it either <laughs> oh it went down to 133 dollars for thanksgiving and i was very tempted mm-hmm. but i decided to instead spend my money on the smallville nights thing at the recent la comic con 
Sure. And you know what? I like. I'm like. I already have these episodes. I know. I have them twice already. Yeah, but... I've got most of them twice. Yeah. I actually don't have the original season ten set, but I got season ten in the complete series. Yeah, that's a same for me because they came out at the same time. They should have given you a free copy of the Blu-ray set, in my opinion. I think it's a crime that that you didn't get your own copy. Oh, of it. I agree, but I think actually that they didn't get any. Like the publicity people didn't get any. Oh, it wasn't okay. like the supernatural one where they forgot me and I was kind of pissed. <laughs> they like I know no one who got sent it. Wow. Okay. Well, so I, I feel a little bit better about that. I was like, yeah. you guys didn't forget me this time. Good. Yeah. But I mean, I would still <laughs> love to see it. I mean. They recently put Superman and Lois on Blu-ray and they sent me that and it looks beautiful. Like as good as the show looks on TV, it looks even better on Blu-ray. So hopefully Smartphone would have a similar feeling to it. Well, and I think even um, on Hulu, the transfers on Hulu are the HD transfers. It's obviously not going to be as high quality as the Blu-ray, but like I watched that, I watched this episode on Hulu and then watched it on DVD and I feel like I noticed a difference. Well, I watched it on Hulu today, actually. Oh, okay. I definitely did notice the high definition because I noticed how bad some people's skin was in this episode. (laughs) I don't know if they broke out from like whatever makeup they used for the noir stuff Mm -hmm. or what. But, like, I've never noticed that on the show before. Yeah, that's interesting. (laughs) I wonder if that was, yeah, that could have been the case. Yeah. Well, the episode we're watching, Noir, uh, synopsis per IMDb is, after a secret meeting with Lionel, Lana is shot at the Daily Planet by a mysterious gunman. Jimmy is knocked out while studying photographs of the scene and dreams about a 1940s black and white version of Smallville. That's actually a pretty good pretty good summary of this episode. The original air date was May 3rd, 2007. Damn, that was a long time ago. I know, right? <laughs> it was written by Brian Peterson and Kelly Souders, uh, who are regular writers. They went on to show run the last three seasons of the show. Um, and since then, I've worked on the Beauty and the Beast reboot, Under the Dome, and The Hot Zone, and I think some other stuff as well. Um, like we mentioned before, it was directed directed by Jeanneau Schwartz, who has directed a bunch of Smallville episodes. Uh, he's been directing since 1968, which blew my mind when I was looking up some of his credits. And like you mentioned, he's directed the Supergirl film and Jaws 2. So this episode starts with Jimmy setting up a film projector in an empty basement of the Daily Planet for a private screening of The Big Sleep with Chloe. And this is, I think, when it first very heavily references the parallels to, like, noir that's happening in uh, the real lives of these characters. I figured you could use an escape from your real-life soap opera. What do you mean? Well, you live it every day, but from the outside. Your life's got Cadney and Stanwyck written all over it. You got your billionaire mogul. You got the confused damsel who shows money over love and the mysterious best friend who shows up everywhere because he can't seem to get a real job. <laughs> Not to mention the steadfast dame they all depend on. Wow, a real glimpse into the mind of Jimmy Olsen. And also that film projector comes up again later in the series where they magically have film of the Justice Society. If you remember. Oh, God, that's right. That always bothered me. Yeah. <laughs> like, we have video of them getting arrested, each one. Yeah. Like, okay. And then nobody ever bothered to mention that superheroes existed in this world until now. All right. Sure. Whatever show. Sure, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so they're having a nice little snugly romantic time uh, until they hear a gunshot uh they go to the elevator lobby um they see a figure running upstairs jimmy takes a photo with a cell phone of the figure oh and it was uh, an our, old ass cell phone too old oh my god a major plot point of this episode is that it's taking forever to download this photo from his flip phone to the computer 
<laughs> it rules. So good. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Um, but the big shocking thing right before credits is that they see that the person who was shot uh, was Lana Lang, who is lying in the elevator in an evening gown, unconscious and bleeding from a gunshot wound to her shoulder, uh, which is quite a way to uh, open an episode. Right off the bat, just just because the credits come up and she's in the credits, but not in this episode. I'm really bummed that Annette O'Toole isn't in this one because she would have killed it in the noir stuff. I agree. She... Um... I feel like she missed out on a lot of the fun stuff like that. Um, yep. I remember when I did my season six book, she was talking about the costume party, and I think it was with her. Mm-hmm. And originally, they were going to dress her up like Cher. That would have been so good. She was going to say, I got you, babe, to Clark <sighs> at one point. But I guess that was too sexy for Mama Kent to be. Oh, my God. So just made her like Maid Marian or something. No, I don't think they even, I remember, I think I remember distinctly, I don't think they ever show what she's dressed up as because they only show close-ups of her. So you only see her like from the shoulders up, which is stupid. So it was going to be Cher and that would have been amazing. But I know Annette yeah. would have loved this. Like Annette seems to just love an acting challenge like that. And I mean, Mm -hmm. she's, I mean, she's done a lot of theater since Smallville and probably before as well. Mm -hmm. And then of course her and her husband wrote music for the movie, A Mighty Wind. And I once went to a concert where they sang. So I love it. And so like, I could just see, you know, like that, A Mighty Wind had a very like 1950s folksy feel. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure she would have just as much fun with the forties. Yeah, I think so too. I actually saw during um uh when when there was a lot of like Zoom theater performances going on last year, I saw a performance that she did with John Glover. It was called uh Hamlet in Bed and it was I mean, she was phenomenal in it. Uh it but it, it was it was so cool to like see see the two of them <laughs> on screen together. It was so cool. How did I not know about this? I was definitely posting about it when it happened. Uh, and it was, it was cheap too. Cause it was like, that was, it, they had done it on stage and it was just like reprising it. I think, I think it was specifically as a fundraiser um, for, for a particular theater. So that's so wonderful. That's so cool yeah. that they did that. I mean, I love Annette and Glover's friendship that they still have to this day. Um, I spoke to Annette before, um, for the 20th anniversary, I guess a month or two ago, mm-hmm. uh, she was talking about how like Glover and his husband were the last people that visited them at the house before COVID. Oh my God. Love to have them as my first people after, you know, oh, this is so I cool. love it. They are friends, especially if she had gotten yeah. to work with uh, Glover in this episode, I'm sure they both would have been great. Yeah, that uh, that interview was like phenomenal. By the way, it's so much fun talking to her again. She's definitely one of my faves. Uh, I, I guess like the rationale for not including her is that I don't know if Jimmy had ever even interacted with her or met her, so maybe it would be weird for her to just show up in his dream. But like, also, no one would question it if she did. But as it stands, we only see her in the credits. Uh, this time around, but she still looks fabulous in the credits. Always looks, always look fabulous in the credits. She looks fabulous all the time. Hair. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Oh, it's so good. So after we come back uh, from credits, uh, we see the police and EMTs. Lionel is there and whispers to uh, to the unconscious Lana that he's sorry he got her caught up in this and that he'll find whoever did this, which is obviously suspicious. Um, Lex arrives shortly afterwards, and it's made very clear that Ly- that uh, Lana was actually with the opera with Lionel and not with. Lex, her husband, which is obviously going to raise a bunch of red flags. So the police think it was a mugging. A mugging. 
inside the building? Now, normally I'd be the first person to cry foul play, but she was downtown, middle of the night, fancy dress, stolen purse. I mean, he, he probably jumped her before she knew what was happening. Am I the only one that thinks it's weird that she was whining and dining with Daddy Warbucks instead of Lex? Now, wait a second. Whoever attacked her is still out there. Jimmy and I saw him flee, and he did get away. But the police will run prints on the gun. Yeah, which the mugger thoughtfully left behind. But what was Lana doing here in the middle of the night anyways? Lois is also there at the scene trying to get the scoop. The only important thing with her is that she notices the contents of Lana's purse scattered on the floor, including a silver cigarette case, and through some uh, fake clumsiness manages to snag that cigarette case, which will come into play later in the episode. The other major thing that happens in the scene is that Clark arrives and feels guilty as usual. I should have been watching her. Ever since she married Lex, I've been so angry. Oh, tell me you are not making this your fault. I've always been there for her until now. That's an insane thing to think, dude. So calm down. It's not your fault. Bottom line, all of it is very weird and suspicious. Um, and it's very clearly going to be a mystery that has to be solved. And then uh, this is when we actually get to the meat of the episode. While a movie's playing, while that the big sleep is playing in the background, Jimmy is <laughs> trying to download the photo from his phone to his computer, which takes many steps and chords and time. Can he email it to himself? <laughs> Email it to himself, yeah. Um, but before he can, because again, it takes forever to do this, suddenly a, a figure emerges from the shadows, strikes Jimmy over the head, and he is knocked, knocked unconscious and wakes up in a black and white world of Metropolis on May 3rd, 1940. Sleeping on the job, what's the big idea? Uh, well, I don't, I can't. I don't, I can't. What's gotten into you, Jimmy Olsen? The whole town is hopping with the senator's visit and you're on the first train to dreamland. Now, I didn't take a job slinging coffee for just anyone. I picked the best, I tell you. The best. The Daily Planet's never seen a reporter like you and I plan on keeping it that way. 81 years ago. 81 years ago. Yeah, my God. I, I do like that this episode takes place on the day that it aired, too, because it's aired on May 3rd, and the yeah. newspaper explicitly says it's May 3rd, 1940. So in this dream world, Jimmy is the Daily Planet star reporter. Chloe Sullivan is his girl Friday, and she's uh, so, like, obviously there's a lot of baggage when it comes to Alice and Mac, but regardless of, of any present-day stuff, like, she's always she always shines on this show, and she fucking rules in this episode. Yeah. I mean, I think that of everyone, everyone does a good does a does a, does either a reasonably good to great job in this episode. But I think she's the one who really clearly fully 100% embodies a super specific archetype from this time period and like nails it. Um kind like, of goes back to the acting exercise of it. I know like Allison was always interested in art in creating art. And how much better of art can you create than a noir episode of a TV yeah. show? Like, it gave her a chance to do something that's kind of Chloe, but kind of not. It's a great use of her because she's not in the noir stuff a lot. But every time, every moment that she's in there, like, she kills it. Her hair, her outfit. Yeah, it's perfect. And all of her mannerisms and everything. Yeah, like you said, like, it's very similar to Chloe as a character, but still feels like a completely different person. Yeah. Jimmy also meets another reporter who's a, a bespeckled Clark Kent. Miss Sullivan, we haven't even met yet, and already I've ruined your blouse. This is very... I'm <clears throat> Clark Kent. Okay, Kent. I'm Clark Kent. Uh. Obviously, the show loves to do these little anchors where it's like, look at Clark, but he's the Clark Kent 
of the comics now. <laughs> I do kind of wish he had a hat like George Reeves would wear. Yeah, that seems like a weird missed opportunity, doesn't it? I don't think his glasses <laughs> were that like rounded style that George Reeves would wear either. I think that would have been a perfect opportunity. But again, I think Tom brought it and he looked... He looks like the manly man of a 1940 movie. Yeah. Yeah. He's really good in this episode too. I think like, um, cause, cause I've, I mean, I think the people have softened on it now, but I do think there was a long time when people, I think really didn't give him any credit for, for his performance and his acting ability at all. And I do think that this is one of those points when it's like very clear that like, The way that he acts as Clark is very intentional because his acting in his scenes as Clark in the real world, like are so distinctly different from the basically two characters that he plays in the noir world. Like this clumsy and bumbling Clark is, is really fun and really distinct. And I think he handles it really well. And I love when he's like hen pecking at his typewriter. It's really cute. And then like the sort of Cary Grant version of him that we see later is still very distinct from the real world Clark Kent that we, that we see. Well, that's like, um, they were talking about this at LA comic con a little bit about how transference, which Tom said is his favorite episode. Like, Mm -hmm. He got to have a meaty role like Lionel in that episode. I think that was some of the best acting he ever did. He like watched how John Glover would move and how he would speak. And Glover, who, you know, is an award-winning actor, he's the one that had trouble embodying a character like Clark because it's like you can't go too big with that because he's not there yet. Yeah. That's really interesting. So, uh yeah, I agree with you that there's a lot that's intentional with Clark. Yeah, yeah. There is like, it is hard to play someone who is not a particularly deep thinker, <laughs> which is what this version of Clark is. And I think he does better at it than he's often given credit for. So there's like a split second where Jimmy is like kind of confused about it and recognizes that it's an alternate reality, but then very quickly just becomes immersed in it. And then it's like full on just full on dream mode. And we're just watching a noir movie for the rest of the, uh, for the rest of the episode, pretty much. And then he takes a call from Lana Luthor. I hear you're the best. I want to report a murder. Whose? Mine. Which is a, a direct reference to the plot of another noir film called DOA, where someone calls is like, I'd like to report a murder mine i think i think it's this scene but since you mentioned george reeves there's like a shot of the sign from the daily planet Mm -hmm. and that's like directly footage from the 1950s adventures of superman show that they pulled for it really i did not notice that yeah yeah i think that's the only footage they use from that show in this because there's other clips of like of like the city and the car chase that's pulled from other warner brothers movies i think but that one yeah is directly from adventures of superman now i gotta look at that yeah, it's very cool. I think if you just Google like Smallville Noir Daily Planet, it'll it'll come up. So Jimmy goes to meet Lana. The untouchable Lana Luther. Seems a lot of people got a lot of ideas about me. Listen, I don't know if it's such a good idea. The old man's got to own half a metropolis, not to mention a certain building at 1000 Broadway. Big globe on top. Just talking to you could lose me my job. Better your job than my life. My husband's trying to kill me. 
She gives him a silver cigarette case with gardenias engraved on it. And if you've been paying attention, you recognize that that's the same cigarette case that in the real world Lois took from the crime scene. Um, and inside of this cigarette case, in this case, is a large amount of cash and a matchbook from the Talon, a seedy lounge. I really like... Kristen in this a lot too. I think she embodies the femme fatale vibe incredibly well. Well, again, it's something different for her to do after six years of playing just Lana. I mean, I guess she had like the Joe and Louise episode, but yeah. 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 And I think like she, she's, she's already playing a darker version of her character, I guess at this point in the show, but like this is, this is just like full on embracing it and, yeah, I think it's great. It's good. It's fun. So Jimmy goes to the talent. He can't at first he can't get past the bouncer until Clark Kent appears, except he is suddenly suave and put together at this point, which is uh, very weird. Uh, he ushers Jimmy into the club where they meet a couple of people. Lion, uh, Lionel Luthor. Lu- I keep saying Luthor. But they say Luther in the show. I don't know what's hey, wrong Mr. with Mr. Luthor. The Luthor. <laughs> <laughs> they meet Lionel Luther, who is a dandy and dapper owner of the club and bartender with a tiny mustache like you reference. It's weird seeing him clean shave, almost clean shaven. Eyes back in your head, old son. I didn't peg you as the kind of guy with a secret identity. And you're never gonna. Now, suppose you tell me what story you're chasing. No story, just thirsty. Come on, a guy like you, the reputation uphold? You wouldn't be caught a hundred yards of this place unless you were sitting on a big scoop. Rye whiskey. Rocks. Put it on his tap, Joe. Name's Kent. And also Lois Lane, who is a lounge singer. I want somebody else. And it's, it is very good at it, too. I, I think she has a good singing voice. And, I mean, we have a history of this. I mean, there's a Lois and Clark arc where Lois gets knocked in the head and thinks she's a lounge singer named Wanda Detroit for a couple episodes. <laughs> I did not know that happened. <laughs> Wait, is that is that does that going on while like the clone Lois yes. stuff is happening? Yep. Wow. It went on way too long. <laughs> Didn't Lois and Clark also do a noir episode or something like a black and white episode at one point? No, but they did a whole bottle episode inside the Daily Planet, which I thought was really good. Oh, okay. I have to check that out. I haven't seen that. I know what you're probably thinking of. There's an episode where they're having dreams about their relationship. Oh, it's like an episode of I Love Lucy. And then there were like two other sequences that I don't remember that well anymore. Mm hmm. Oh, that's fun. I will make a note of all of those things because that seems like an episode that I might want to do on this podcast, actually. Yeah, I think that was Don't Tug on Superman's Cape. Or was it Just Say Noah? It was one of those two episodes. (laughs) And it had a great, Just Say Noah had a great pun in the title, so. Yeah, that's fun. (laughs) (laughs) That show seemed to have pretty great episode titles, actually. Yeah, when we (laughs) did our fan fiction fifth season, we continued that tradition. Mm Mm-hmm. I remember being particularly proud of uh, we had a time travel episode 
It was around the time the movie Clear and Present Danger came out, and we called it Past and Present Danger. Ooh, that's that's a good one. <laughs> and we also had the X-Files EX, where Lex's ex-wife comes back again. Nice. Uh, we, we had some good ones. Yeah. Can't oh, remember no. all of them, but it's, you know, again, it's been 24 years. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> We're old. <laughs> yeah, so you see Clark kind of catches Jimmy eyeing Lex. So it's Luther you're after. Better wipe that newsy smile off your face. Luther can smell fresh blood a mile away. Fresh? Now you listen here, Kent. Relax. I'm one of the good guys. If it's uh, young Luther you're tailing, I got a tip for you. On the house. Every night he makes a big exit. Make sure the whole joint knows it. But when his car pulls off out of the alley, he's not in it. Jimmy follows Lex to find that he is having a secret affair with that lounge singer, Lois. And Lex says pretty explicitly that, Believe me, Angel, my wife will be out of the picture soon enough. You can't keep toying with a girl's heart like this. Seems to be telegraphing what's going on. Uh, Jimmy snaps a hilariously obvious photo of them, flash bulb and all, which is fantastic. And this prompts a really cool car chase that they have that is very clearly pulled like right out of, of an old movie. Um, Cause it's like, clearly they're clearly in like a car set. The fake background is like super obvious. Oh, I love the fake yeah. background. It's so good. And they even cut it with like these like kind of grainy sped up clips that are clearly pulled from like real old movies too. This is just fun. This I think I pulled this from the wiki or something, but apparently like there's a sign that Jimmy hits that has the name Mortimer X Welsh on it, who is apparently a character in the movie The Racket, which is a film noir movie as well. So they pack like noir references even into the details of this, which I love. So Jimmy takes this photo to Lana. Has it all been in my head? Have I been so lonely I've started making up stories to amuse myself? I'm afraid not. You're right about your husband wanting to get rid of you. And soon. If I run, he'll track me down. And if I confront him, he'll make it look like an accident. Don't worry. I'll take care of Lex. And she gives him a pistol to protect himself. If you've seen a noir film, you kind of know what's happening, that it's a manipulation thing here. But if you don't know noir, maybe, I don't know, maybe you don't know what's going on. So uh, Jimmy meets with Lex. Now what you do with the singer, that's your business. But I'm not about to let you bump off your wife along the way. Oh yeah, I heard you say you were going to get rid of her. Sure I am. Once the divorce is final, I file for it today. Came as a shock to your wife. I doubt that. Don't worry, Jimmy. You're not the first sucker she's spun in a web. But you better get out before you stick. When he goes to reach into his jacket, Jimmy impulsively reacts and shoots him. And uh, with his last breath, Lex mutters, Gardenia. And it was very clear that he was just reaching for his cigarette case. So it wasn't a self-defense, unfortunately, for Jimmy. Another noir reference is uh, the word gardenia. That's like a notable scene in the Maltese Falcon where um, where Sam Spade like says gardenia when he's uh, in reference to like the business card of the character Caro 
to uh, because that's like the scent of like gardenia perfume and that's supposed to be a reference of Caro being like a homosexual apparently but it was their way of getting around the haze code uh-huh. uh, so they could like lightly reference like oh a man who uses gardenia perfume must be a homosexual got it I feel like that has to be intentional because like gardenia is such a specific yeah. thing and for you know okay at this point in the like I'm just curious to kind of clock where you're at in this episode like where what your what you're feeling about how the whole murder mystery plot and everything is sort of unfolding honestly I think I was a lot more into the look of the episode than the actual yeah. plot I agree with you I mean I guess that's like anything on the CW but um <laughs> I was very interested. I, I loved seeing the different versions of the characters. I guess what I find interesting now looking back is how much of it reflected what was going on in the show for real. Yeah. Which I said before, you know, like Lana trying to get away from Lex, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. It's also interesting because, you know, with so many years past, when I hadn't watched this episode, I actually remembered a lot of the present day stuff better, like the very end. Yeah. Like that's like the money shot of the episode. I do have a comment to make about an actor who's showing up once you get there. Okay. Well, cool. I kind of agree with you. Like, I think that they construct a good murder mystery. It's not even a murder mystery because no one has been murdered until this point. But like a good mystery noir plot in that it's very clearly emulating the trappings of a noir. But that also like because of that, it's it's very it's both like predictable and also like the twists are weird because you're not really familiar enough with the characters. So like it almost like doesn't matter because you're just watching it to see how they play with noir tropes essentially. Yeah. So like Lex's death, it's immediately a headline. Chloe hears about it. She figures out that it's Jimmy. So she tracks him down. Jimmy, I've been to every gin joint in town looking for you. Not the only one. I figured it would be the last place you were, but the first place I'd find you. They think you shot Lex Luthor. I shot him all right. He went down cold right in front of me. Listen, I'm not going to let you go down for this, Jimmy. Someone set you up, and I just might know who did it. That telephone line you had for Mrs. Luther, turns out you weren't the only one who's been dialing it. Seems that shiny new reporter Clark Kent's been spinning those numbers ever since he came into town. What are you trying to tell me? Looks like the boss's old lady might be getting a little more from Kent than just the headlines. I also want to say I did love the scene after Lex is killed where everybody's on the phones. Yeah. Calling their front desk, you know, for their newspapers or whatever. I feel like clearly journalism was a very different thing in the 40s. Yeah. And it is just really fun just to see the uh, like the phone operators like doing the old school, like plugging the cords into the whole thing. I don't know what you call any of that, but connecting the calls and stuff. All that's really fun. Yeah. So Lionel overhears this conversation. He calls Lana to warn her. Listen, boy wonder man taking the bait, but he's on to you. Doesn't matter anymore. You're back on top of the low life food chain and I'm out from under a suffocating marriage. And it's revealed that she's actually having an affair with Clark Kent. So Jimmy goes to confront Clark at the planet, but is shocked to discover Lana instead. Uh, she just fully admits and lays out that she orchestrated this entire setup. And then she shoots him. Suddenly another gunshot rings out and it's Lana who is now shot from the back by Clark. Clark was actually a cop the entire time. And Jimmy has survived his gunshot because the cigarette case that he was given by Lex deflected the bullet. So he is unharmed. I should have known better. Rule number one, never get mixed up with a girl. Not when you're on the job. You're a cop. Undercover unit, I was sent here to watch Lex Luthor. 
falling in love with his wife. That was... That was my mistake. Those are some eyes that she had. Would have made any guy want to be a hero. Yeah, those eyes just got you the electric chair. Someone should have told you, kid. There are no heroes in Metropolis. Uh, which I love <laughs> and is dark uh, because even though Detective Kent was in and all of it, he's still letting Jimmy take the fall for the murders <laughs> uh, in, in true dark, cynical, sad, noir fashion. So the dream's over. And what I think is funny is that there's actually still like kind of a lot of episode left after they get out of the noir dream, which I always forget how much of the episode there is after this. Hmm. Jimmy wakes up. It's right in front of me the whole time. I didn't see it. Uh, Jimmy, remember me? The one outside your head? Lana didn't know you were working last night. What if she wasn't here to see you? What if she's not as innocent as she looks? Why would she come to the cellar of wannabes in the middle of the night if it wasn't to visit us? Look, I know that Lana's your friend and you don't want to think of her as a double-crossing two-tommy backstabber, but, you know, maybe she had something she couldn't trust you with uses the clues from his dream to kind of piece together that the gardenia cigarette case is missing from the crime scene. And he's like, well, hold on. Why was there a cigarette case if Lana doesn't smoke? Maybe whatever was in that cigarette case is actually uh, what Lana had that is worth being killed over. So like they use the elevator memory to figure out which floor she was last on. Yeah, is, that, was a thing. is that a thing or did they just make that up? I feel like they just made that up. <laughs> I think so too. What did they just like control Z on the elevator or something? Right. Cause they don't show them doing anything. They're just like no. the computer has a memory. And then the next shot is them walking out of the elevator on the floor. So, <laughs> but the floor is a political correspondence floor and they encounter a reporter named Brennan. Uh, is this the actor you wanted to call yes, out? Yes, because he was actually Biddleman who was uh, Carrie Fisher's assistant in the episode thirst. But also he was on Edgemont with Christian Krug. I didn't know yeah. that. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah. It was funny. Cause I actually just watched thirst for Halloween <laughs> and that's like, was the last episode of small Fallville I've watched in a while. And then I watched this one and he also appears on this episode. So well, in the fandom at the time, we all thought Biddleman was going to be Chloe's love interest. The one that she said she hooked up with over the summer. That she would, ended up becoming Jimmy. That would have checked out though. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And then he ended up being like a no name who had like one line in the Carrie Fisher episode. Yeah. Hey, he got to act with Carrie Fisher. So that's cool. I know. Right. <laughs> so this reporter kind of admits that Lana had contacted him about this important Luther related information. Mrs. Luther said she had a story and wanted to meet. She must have been getting off the elevator when someone intercepted her. You know, I, I heard the gunshot. I saw the elevator going down. So I took the stairs. But when I got there, I heard you coming, and I guess I just panicked. He's the guy who knocked Jimmy out, but he's not the killer, um, which is made obvious when he, too, is shot dead through the office door. Which is also very noir-ish, I thought. I think so, too. Yeah, so it's like sort of the noir, the noir dream world is like sort of seeping into the real world of Smallville. Or like I said... The Smallville had already basically become a noir at this point anyway. It's just highlighted in this episode how noirish it's been for a while. So Jimmy runs after the gunman while Chloe, Chloe calls Clark. Uh, there's a little fight in the lobby, but during the tussle, Chloe gets knocked off the balcony in the big CGI money shot that you referenced in this episode. It holds up. It looks really cool. It looks great. Yeah, that really is one of the coolest shots. And it's like so unnecessary, but like... 
it's props for doing it because they pull it off. I mean, thank goodness she didn't like hit the side of the stairwell on her way down or something. Right? Yeah. Cause you see Chloe fall the down like the entire middle of the spiral staircase, many, many, many floors, and then Clark catches her right at the last second. You didn't have to wait till the last second, you know. What fun would that be? I also love that then he just puts her down on the couch and then Jimmy just finds her sitting on the couch. Like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's so funny too. Cause he's like, what, how are you? And she just kisses him and that's how they solve it. And he will just never ask questions ever again. (laughs) Cause that's how the show works. I do think an issue that I kind of have with this episode is that I do think the end of it does kind of drag. Like, I think once they're out of the noir dream, it, there's just scene after scene wrapping stuff up. And I'm like, I feel like I've already reached the end of the episode and it's yeah. going on forever now. And it's all in service of just setting up the next couple episodes. And I kind of wish that they just let the dr- noir dream be a little longer and just move this stuff to like the week after yeah, that. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Now we know what Lex is up to. And I guess they wanted to tee up. Wasn't prototype the week after this? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, I give them kudos for wanting to make sure that this still felt like vital and necessary for the plot arc because, you know, we get, so like the next scene we get is Lois who has the cigarette case. Lionel's there waiting for her because she knew, he knew she stole it. He's like, you got to give it to me. <laughs> There's a flash drive in there. He watches a video on the flash drive, and it's all about Lex meeting with Senator Burke about Project Ares, which is all tied into the season story arc. Wow. You have got to give Lana major props for double crossing both Luthers. Last couple scenes we have uh, Chloe visits Lana in the hospital, and she finds out that. Uh, Lionel was forcing Lana to spy on Lex. She was actually going to give evidence to the papers to incriminate both of them because Lionel has been forcing Lana to spy on Lex based on information that he has about Clark's weakness that he's been using as a threat. So again, more of these like complicated noirish secrets and lies, secrets and lies, secrets and lies. Yeah. We go to another conversation this time between Clark and Chloe also about secrets and lies. I don't really like this scene because it's just rehash of what we see over and over again. And I feel like Clark is way too aggressive with Chloe too. I don't like him grabbing her. That made me very uncomfortable to watch. In the last scene of the episode, uh, it's uh, Chloe meeting Jimmy outside the Talon. Oh, come on. Even I was impressed with the Sam Spade quick thinking. You can't tell me all that just came from a bunk on the noggin. You know, it was so weird. Half of it made sense, but Lana and Lionel working together and Clark Kent leading a double life uh, as a reporter by day and crime fighter by night. You know, it's funny what your mind will cook up. He announces that he's been promoted and he's leaving Kansas on assignment thanks to the notoriety from the story. But he wants to take a photograph with his girl before he goes. So with a uh, with the noir song playing, it's the same song that uh, that Lois sang in his dream. So weird that he was able to get that on his iPod somehow. They share a kiss reminiscent of that famous VJ Day kiss photograph. And that's how the episode ends. Was that the last time we see Aaron in the season? Yeah, this is the last time we see him, and he doesn't show up until like three or four episodes into season seven again. Even though he was a series regular, so we kind of figured he was going to be back. Yeah. Okay, I wonder if they had known he was coming back when they filmed, or they just thought, oh, we got to write Jimmy off the show. Yeah, I guess, I mean, it could go either way. They might not, it, it was a contingency, so if he never showed up again, then it's fine, but then it's easy, it's an easy opening to bring him back too, so makes sense. So where, what are your what uh, what are your general thoughts on this one then at this point? Again, I thought it was a fun experiment. It looked great. 
I mean, all the kudos that Glenn Winter and Janelle Schwartz got for this episode were well-deserved. Yeah. Yeah, the story, I do agree that, like, the story kind of started to drag at a certain point. But it was just fun to see. So I'm glad we watched this. I'm glad you just that you suggested it. Yeah, so. I am too. I think it's really fun. I think um, it was, the, yeah, this was sort of the weirdest like plot summary to go through because like there was a lot of stuff to write if I'm covering the plot, but like not a whole, not a whole lot to really talk about because it really is just people talking to each other, finding a clue, going to the next scene, talking to each other, someone gets shot. Um, and then the whole last act of it is sort of your basic Smallville, everyone talking about secrets and lies stuff. Uh, and yeah, yeah. And again, like, I think that that I, I don't I that's one thing that I don't begrudge anyone who maybe walked away from this episode and weren't really feeling it because I don't think it ends on a high note because it, it does just reflect all the stuff that you're already tired of from the show. I don't think you're left with enough of an impression from the the really cool noir stuff that they're doing for the middle of it, which is why I sort of wish it almost was like more of the episode, you know. But, you know, one thing I spoke with somebody from Smallville about that I tend to agree with is it's interesting that. The best season finales of the show were often on seasons that themselves weren't that great. Hmm. I thought Phantom was a really strong season finale, whereas hmm. maybe Vessel might not have been. Commencement was great, even though season four was kind of a mess at the time. You know, I think that's interesting. Or, you know, the end of season two where Clark goes off on the bike. I mean, but yeah. again, season three did have an amazing finale. So it doesn't not yeah. always the case, but... I see what you mean. Coming after this. Yeah, yeah, that that's true. Yeah, it's it is interesting. It's like I think that this episode, I think this episode works better if you're pulling it out of the season than watching it in succession with the rest of the season in context. Because mm-hmm. like I haven't watched season six in a long time, so even though the stuff at the end it's sort of like okay just talk to each other you guys oh my god your friends just fucking talk to each other mm-hmm. and stop with this stuff. Um, it still was sort of like, yeah, but it's still nice hanging out with my friends again. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, it was fun to watch. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Beautiful episode. Really cool. I love to see them making big, uh, big swings. And I think it's a good example of a noir episode done well as well uh, in terms of how hard they went on it. So cool, cool. Well, people want to find you online and all the stuff you're working on. Where can they find you, Craig? Uh, K-Site TV on Twitter. Or if you're a Smallville fan, follow Krypton Site. And you can pretty much find all my stuff from there. Awesome. Awesome. You can find me on Twitter at Derek B. Gale or on my other podcasts, Walloping Web Snappers, a Spider-Man podcast, which does deep dives into every Spider-Man cartoon ever made and also Falling with Style, an ongoing Pixar movie marathon, which is a monthly podcast that dives into every Pixar film chronologically. You can also follow this podcast at Gimmicks Pod on Twitter and Instagram for some extra goodies and email me your questions, feedback and corrections to gimmickspodcast at gmail.com. Please rate, review and subscribe on all podcast platforms if you could that really helps people find this show and until next time friends keep being weird i want somebody Somebody else, some other man.
And the Clark Lonelike stuff still makes no sense to me because like, oh, great. So I just said the name of the villain from Smallville and my A-L-E-X-A just went off. Alexa, stop. That is amazing. (laughs) So, um, 